Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A fascinating piece over at uh, Daily Coast by Mark Sumner on the Daily Coast staff. The title is The Second Amendment is a Failed Experiment, and it's time for reasonable people to admit that fact. This weekend, over 400 shootings, 150 fatalities. People are wondering, you know, why is there this sudden increase in gun violence? Well, it's because there's been a sudden increase in guns. Tens of millions of guns were sold during the COVID time. Uh, it, it was like one of the top five years in, in the history of the United States for gun sales, 2020. And see, you get more guns, you're going to have more shootings. I mean, it's just like, you know, if you have more cars, you're going to have more car accidents. Uh, you know, talk to anybody who lives in a big city who has to deal with rush hour. You, you, you know, the more cars, the more car accidents, the more guns, the more shootings. Intentional, unintentional, a whole bit. Uh, and last month, Missouri joined the ranks of states that have passed preemptive legislation that says if the federal government decides that uh, AR-15s, you know, weapons of war, essentially, or, or uh, other semi-automatic weapons are not uh, approved weaponry any longer. And the Heller decision allows for this, by the way. The, the Supreme Court's Heller decision that found that the Second Amendment encompasses the right to self-defense is very clear that the government may de determine which guns constitute legitimate instruments of self-defense as opposed to which are essentially offensive weapons used in war. We already banned, for example, fully automatic machine guns or fully automatic weapons. We ban, you know, shoulder-fired ground-to-air missiles or shoulder-fired anti-tank missiles. Or There's a bunch of stuff that we ban. We ban IEDs, even though they're easier to get and make than guns. But Missouri Governor Mike Parson says, uh, you've had the Vice President of the United States, he's a, this is the Republican Governor of Missouri, when he's signing this legislation saying that we will essentially overrule any federal gun control legislation. Mike Parson says, you've had the Vice President of the United States get up at an open forum when she was running for president, if you remember this, and any particular weapon she decided she didn't like, she was going to come into your house, open to your front door, and take it away. Well, in Missouri, she's not. Well, if you don't remember Kamala Harris ever saying that, it's because she never did. As Mark Sumner points out. 
Uh, all she said was that she would use, if she became president, and legislators refused to enact, quote, reasonable gun safety laws, end quote, she'd consider doing it by executive action. But this fantasy, as Mark Sumner calls it, is, is just spreading across the country. I mean, you know, in Texas, Tennessee, Iowa, they're using this record gun violence, which is, in my opinion, a consequence of a record number of guns, as a way to loosen their gun laws, which is nuts. The Second Amendment was passed for two principal, it passed the way it was for two principal reasons. The first reason was why it was written in the first place, and that was that the people who were writing the Constitution were well aware of the fact that armies can be corrupted, that armies can take on their own political nature because they have the force of arms, they have, you know, they, they have the ability to take lives. Armies have considerable political power or can acquire considerable political power out of that. And in fact, in Federalist 46, Hamilton talks about, you know, what might happen if the army gets corrupted. And the corruption of the army would be, in this case, in his case, you know, via the commander in chief. He says, you know, the, the, he's talking about a military force for the projects of ambition. He calls this an extravagant supposition. Let's say that the people of the United States should, for a sufficient period, elect an uninterrupted secession of men ready to betray both, both their country and their military. That the traitors should, throughout this period, uniformly and systematically pursue some fixed plan for the extension of the military establishment. And in other words, you would have somebody take over the country. This is, this is what Hamilton is describing here, is what Donald Trump tried to do with the military in the United States uh, on January 6th, where he was trying, and, and frankly at Lafayette Square, where he was trying to get the military to attack American civilians. We have laws against it, which is why it didn't happen. But Hamilton is saying, oh, you know, this is a possibility. And so the way that we solve this problem is we have, we have militias within the states. Each state has its own militia. And at that point in time, Every state did have its own militia. The militias in the North were just good old-fashioned militias. They were regulated by the states. They were well-regulated by the states, in fact. And the militias in the South tended to do double duty as slave patrols. Explicitly, in South Carolina and Georgia, their entire militia was also their entire slave patrol. To a slightly lesser extent in Virginia and North Carolina. So when they passed the Second Amendment, the goal was to allow state militias, and it was in combination with the, the place in Article I, Section 8, where the only thing that, that the founders, the framers of the Constitution, the only thing where the, the only place where they limit the power of Congress to appropriate money, the only limitation. On, on raising and spending or borrowing and spending money is for the military. In Article 1, Section 8, it says that no money shall be appropriated for the military that lasts more than two years. I'm paraphrasing, but you can read it. It's in the Constitution. And that's why, and what that means is that at the end of two years, the military ceases to exist, or at least the Army. The Navy wouldn't cease to exist. This is specifically about the Army. It would cease to exist if it wasn't renewed every two years. And this is because 
about half the founders, and Hamilton was among them, believed that instead of having a standing army during time of peace, now there is a provision in the Constitution for the president to call up, a, you know, to create a standing army during times of conflict, but during times of peace that there should be no standing army because it could be corrupted and it could turn against its own country. And the way you prevent that is you have state militias. And, you know, and he goes on and he talks about this. You know, besides the advantage of being armed, which the American people possess over almost every other nation, the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which the militia officers are appointed. In other words, state militias forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition. So that was, the, you know, the goal, the, the, the reason it was first written was to provide a plan B if the federal army was shut down during time of peace, which Jefferson actually tried to do. When he came into office, there were over 300,000 men in 1801 in the army. When he left office, it was fewer than 6,000, which at the same time, you know, the state militias didn't get elevated, and that's why we had such a problem in the War of 1812, which, you know, came along just four years after Jefferson left office. But this is all like ancient history. Now, it's been, you know, reinterpreted and reread repeatedly over the years, but I would say that, you know, the, the Second Amendment is, uh, you know, officially an anachronism. Why don't we just join the rest of the, the developed world and have reasonable limits? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a sports shooter. I, I enjoy target practice. I do it, you know, I go back to Michigan, I do it with my brothers. I've done it with my kids. I'm not opposed to guns. What I am saying is that this wild explosion of guns and the associated fantasy that we are intended that our, the founders intended us to all have guns so that if the government ever became oppressive, we could overthrow it. No, it, at the very most, if you want to go down that road, it was that state militias would be a defense against a federal army for that state, but that the state militias would be authorized by the state governments. I mean, you know, Hamilton comes right out and says that in Federalist 46, lays it out. But, you know, this has just gone off the rails, I, I, I would say. So, you know, what do we do with that? I think that it's, it's a, a reasonable time as we're seeing hundreds of gun deaths over a weekend to say, wait a minute, have we, have we misunderstood this? Have we gone down the wrong road here? Are we essentially feeding uh, a form of insanity? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And I think the answer is, yeah, we have. Uh, what do we do about that? That's something where we should have a national conversation, in my opinion. Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, George, what's up? Hi, Tom. I hope you're well. When I heard you say the Second Amendment's a failed experiment, I lunged across the bed for the phone. I'm sure you, you know, you've read The Federalist 46 by Madison. 
So, you know, the key point being that the whole people are armed, therefore nobody with tyrannical intentions in the federal government could ever raise a standing army that could defeat us. You know, when the push comes to shove. Yeah, George, um, I'm not buying that. And well, I, I know you I'm sorry, I don't I have four Federalist 46 in front of me, but none of the founders suggested that the populace of America should be armed in order to take down its own government. Nobody that's wrong. ever that's, that's not suggested true. that. Yes. 46 says it. No, it does not. I, you know. It does too, Tom. How can you say that? George, I, you know, I'm just telling you, it's not the case. I know that that argument was made by a 17-year-old high school student in the Rifleman magazine in 1976. That was when it first appeared a big way in the American landscape in the NRA magazine. And the, the NRA started promoting it, but it is not the case. Thank you for the call. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm glad you had a nice weekend with your family. Thank you. Unfortunately, we weren't able to have ours over because both of them are unvaccinated. But that's not why I called. Oh, my. It's just there's nothing I have ever been able to say to reach them. But anyway, I called about the fact uh, of the terrible spike in gun violence over the weekend. Mm -hmm. 500 shootings during our holiday weekend, 233 dead, many injured. Um, what do you attribute this sudden surge in violence to? Because I'm, I'm at a loss. I, I've lived a long time. I'm around your age, a little older. But I, I've never in my lifetime seen anything remotely like the violence we're seeing now. What do you think is causing this? There was an article that I read maybe two months ago, and I'm sorry that I can't off the top of my head remember where I read it or the exact number. But it essentially said that the uh, that between uh, my recollection was 50 million. It might have been 30 or 40 million, but whatever. Tens of millions of guns were sold during the time that we were in lockdown. Guns were it, the 2020 was the best year for gun sales, uh, probably in history. If not in history, then probably the second best year for gun sales after the year that Barack Obama became president in 2009. And that was the year that there was a nationwide gun shortage and an ammunition shortage and all this kind of stuff. And it was, you know, white people arming up because there was a black guy in the White House. And I think it's fairly obvious. If you have more guns, you're going to have more gun deaths. It's a pretty straightforward thing. I, uh, our caller uh, dropped off the board. I'm not sure why. But, but, you know, I think that that's the reason. It's just like if you add 10% more cars to the city of Portland, you're going to probably have more accidents. You're going to have more collisions. You're going to have more rear-ending. You're going to have more road rage. You're going to have more people breaking the law. I mean, it's just more guns, more shootings. It shouldn't surprise anybody. We'll be back. By the way, Federalist 46 is talking. This is the whole argument that we shouldn't have a standing army during times of peace. It has nothing to do with whether you and I should have a gun to overthrow the government. It was, it was the, the, the idea that we should have state militias who could stand up. We'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? 
maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, our book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns by Igor Volsky. This is from the preface, Shooting Guns in the Desert Can Surprise You is the title. We don't teach people how to shoot. We teach them how to think. Mike, the second in command of one of the nation's largest firearms training institutes, tells me over an early dinner. We are at a country club 20 miles north of the gun range where I just spent the last two days firing 200 rounds of ammunition and learning how to safely carry and operate a handgun. A tall, distinguished-looking man who bears a slight resemblance to former President George H.W. Bush, Mike is wearing a yellow polo shirt, neat, clean khakis, and a belt with a holstered handgun and two full magazines. As we sit in front of a beautiful Rocky Mountain backdrop, the tops of which will be covered with snow in a matter of months, I take a big swig of coffee and search for a tactful way to ask Mike the question that's been swirling around my brain since my first day of training at the Firearms Institute. I finally blurted out, I still don't understand why you're lying to your clients. A silence falls over our table. As Mike looks away from me, I look directly at him and wait for him to respond. 48 hours earlier, I had boarded a plane to learn how to shoot a handgun from the best instructors in the business. The opportunity arose through my friend Sam, not his real name, who in the course of my writing this book has become my guide to the world of firearm enthusiasts. Sam invited me to travel to the Southwest and experience a two-day firearm training course with people he described as the best instructors in the world. I will take it with you, and then after, you can interview all the trainers, he said. They all hate the NRA. He had arranged for the range to comp me the two-day course and rental equipment, plus complete access to the other students, instructors, and its leadership team. Sam, a white, boyish, fast-talking ex-Marine and hardcore gun enthusiast, had passionately pitched the idea to me by phone months earlier. You'll love it and really get a taste for what it's all about. Meet some great people and I'll do it with you, he said. Fashioning myself as an open-minded and adventurous person, I jumped at the chance. Surround myself with 600 armed Americans and thousands of rounds of ammunition for two full days of gun shooting in the hot desert? Sign me up. What could possibly go wrong? So there I am, a city slicker who hasn't sat behind the wheel of a car in three or four years, driving my fully insured economy rental car literally into a desert at sunrise one Friday morning in October. I'm blasting a local hit station with the rindas rolled down, singing at the top of my lungs in an effort to wake myself up enough to handle a handgun. Yes, I'm belting out Sia while doing 70 down a dirt road without another car in sight. As I get closer, I turn off the radio, make the right turn, and take a deep, deep breath. Ahead of me, I see a line of cars about 30 deep and a large sign displaying the logo of the Institute. Next to it is a larger placard. Warning, unsafe to enter without authorization. Live fire training area. Risk of severe bodily injury or death. I've arrived. Before I know it, I'm on a 500-acre compound in the middle of the mountains. I drive up to the parking lot, suddenly overcome by the vastness of this place, and pull into a spot. Sam meets me and tells me that more than 600 people will be taking 20 different classes at the Institute that day, most of which involve handguns and rifles. After lunch, classes on automatic machine guns will be available. 
My eyes grow wide at the idea of even being near a machine gun. I smile at him and look around to see people carrying coolers and equipment, behaving as if they're at an amusement park or some kind of sporting event. This is my first feeling of panic, of being found out as an interloper, or worse, a spy in a foreign world. We move into a line for equipment rentals, and Sam points out the people in the best tactical outfits and reviews their looks. Finally, something I can get into. Sam himself is decked out in a slick black shirt, which accentuates his military build, and inverted cargo pants with pockets that expand into the leg, an outfit suited for concealed carry, he tells me. Everyone around us is wearing a variation of this military-style clothing, and I realize that these are specialty clothes designed for recreational firearms shooting. Some even have custom hats with their names embroidered on the front and back as if they're actually serving in the military. These folks are really hardcore. It really has become a lifestyle, Sam says to me. I glance down at my jeans and bright red sneakers and realize I've made a horrible mistake. As if reading my mind, he says, you're just fine, and starts to examine the kit the young attendant has just handed me, making sure I have everything I need. We move forward toward a long row of tables where staffers are inspecting all weapons and ammunition. It's his first time here, Sam says. Magazines, 200 rounds of ammunition, safety goggles, electronic ear protection, holsters, you got it all. The inspector says, mostly for my benefit. I smile and make a mental note that those things that hold the bullets are called magazines, not clips. And, oh, by the way, it's rounds, not bullets. Okay, lift your hands up, the attendant says. Before I know it, he and Sam are putting a belt around my waist and sliding the ammunition holder and gun holster onto it. The inspector confidently drops a Glock 17 into the gun holster on my right side, the firing side, and I'm carrying a firearm for the very first time in my life. As Sam and I start to walk away, I try to decide if I feel any different. Suddenly, the inspector calls out after us. Wait, are you the Sam, he asks. Sam turns around and smiles. I've seen your videos and stuff, the inspector enthusiastically tells him, becoming a starstruck fangirl right before our eyes. The book is Guns Down by Igor Volsky. And welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. And, uh, oh, i got to tell you about the Weather Channel, by the way. This is absolutely fascinating. The, the Weather Channel is planning major changes. This article over at Raw Story. The Weather Channel is planning major changes to its coverage to focus on the impact of climate change. The chief content officer and executive vice president, Nora Zimmett, told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, our viewers are seeing it on their doorsteps. It's impacting them in ways never before seen. Industries such as farming are saying they've never seen such crazy weather patterns. Many natural disasters are being linked to climate change. The evidence has become overwhelming. Young people are shouting about it on the rooftops. So the Weather Channel says, we're going to start covering climate change, essentially, as a dimension of our weather forecasts. So what's the response on the right? Well, the New York Times is reporting that Fox News is moving ahead with plans to create their own weather channel. It's going to be called Fox Weather, 24-7 streaming channel that promises to do for seven-day forecasts what Fox has done for American politics, financial news, and sports. In other words, what, fill it with lies and racism? Well, you know, I mean, maybe it's maybe they're going to hire Donald Trump and his Sharpie to do the weather, right? Uh, here's the cone. Oh, no, it's way over here. Yes. Very strange stuff. I think that when you reach the point 
where weather has become politicized, you have you have really fallen deep into the rabbit hole. It's uh, and and this is this is where our country is at now, where you you literally you've got right wing channels that will not talk about the weather. They will <laughs> they would much rather talk about critical race theory or something like that than talk about the fact that. You know, we had 110 degree heat here in Portland for three days in a row, something that, you know, we were hotter than Las Vegas. You know, we were approaching Death Valley temperature. We were hotter than Dubai, that there are cities in Bangladesh right now where it's it's over 126 degrees. Literally, you cannot survive without air conditioning. And this is happening not just in the United States, it's happening all over the world. There are people who will say, well, back in the 1930s, we had the Dust Bowl. And yeah, we deforested much of the North American continent. And the consequence of that was the Dust Bowl. And yes, we did have some local weather, really significant local weather changes as a result of, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres being deforested. And yes, Franklin Roosevelt largely reversed that with the, with the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC in the 1930s, where he, he put a million men to work planting trees and we reforested America and you can spot those trees they're all about a foot and a half in diameter right now you make them you know about a hundred years old about 90 years old and those were trees. and particularly I you know Louise and I used to drive all over Michigan and you drive up into northern Michigan and as you're driving through the you know on the on the freeway on on, on the highway uh, I think it's 96 you see the forest on either side, and you look back into that forest, and it's like perfect rows, absolute perfect rows. Yes, we put the forest back together. But that was local climate change caused by local terraforming, local you know, changes in, in the geography, essentially, as it related to the weather. But this is now happening planet-wide for the first time in human history. We've been on this, you know, humans more or less, and proto-humans around 3 million years, modern humans 300,000 years. We have never seen anything like this before. And there's a real challenge here. Is, this, is climate change going to destroy human civilization? It already has in some areas. I mean, you've got some parts of the world where it is literally breaking down civilizations, or at least civilized life. I'd say, you know, the Arab Spring was an example of that, and it's continuing in that region. It's happening in Central America right now. So, you know, good on the Weather Channel if they're going to start reporting what's actually going on in the weather. And get ready for Fox Weather. The bubble expands, right? You want to live in a reality-free zone? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's your media support group for We the People of the United States of America. Let's see here. Tom in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, I wanted to talk about that Second Amendment. A lot of people don't realize that those militias were formed as uh, slave rebellion units to put down slave rebellion. In the southern states, yeah. Yes, yes. And then not only that, Washington, General and George, basically didn't like him because they were so unprofessional. They'd either fight, run, or not show up. The state militias? Correct. Huh. 
Correct. It was, it was basically a bone of peace to keep them in line and allow them to, if there was a slave rebellion, stop it. Andrew Jackson, in the defense of New Orleans, specifically asked, this was before the Louisiana Purchase was made, there was a black militia unit who was so professional that he asked for them. And during that Battle of New Orleans, it was 8,000 British versus 3,000 of his soldiers, and they beat him. Wow. He wanted another battalion of them, and they refused. And then they disarmed that group, and that group actually helped put down slave rebellions, black on black. But everybody was so afraid, all the southern states like, oh, no, we can't arm the blacks. That isn't going to work. So basically, this is a carryover, I believe, of uh, a form of keeping white supremacy. You know, the, the whole state militia. I mean, I'm an ex-vet. I used to be a Republican until Trump was elected. I gave him a break for a year and a half, then I did a deep dive, and I changed parties. When I found out what a criminal the guy was, I said, no way. You know, I looked at his past. I looked at his father, who was part of the American Nazi Party. And arrested at a Klan rally. Fred was. Yeah, yeah, 1921. The giant riot they had in New York where a thousand police attacked people. And he never, ever apologized for the uh, Central Park Five that he said was guilty and should be killed and hanged, and they were innocent. Yeah, and he bought a full-page ad in the New York Times saying, put them to death. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with the history of the Battle of, of uh, New Orleans, so I can't, I can't comment specifically on what you had to say, Tom. But it, uh, it you know, it sounds interesting. But, but the 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 state militias, you know, very much were a real thing, and in the South they were large, as you point out, they were largely used to to put down or prevent slave rebellions, and there were a lot of them. Uh, you know, people do not easily submit to being held in slavery, in bondage. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we had to, we created a, essentially a fascist police state in the South in order to maintain slavery. And that's what went to war against the United States of America in 1861. Tom, thanks for the call. Uh, amazing times we live in, huh? from Behold America by Sarah Churchwell, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream. This is from the prologue. On Monday, 30 May 1927, a cool day with showers forecast, New Yorkers were gathering for the annual Memorial Day parades around the city. It was only nine years since the end of the European War, into which America had been so reluctantly drawn and Europe had suddenly become closer than ever before. Precisely 10 days earlier, Charles Lindbergh had completed the first solo flight across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis, and no one had yet stopped celebrating. Front pages around the country reported that Lucky Lindy had been mobbed in London, greeted by rapturous crowds of 150,000. Few Americans were talking about much else than the newest national hero, but in New York that day, different kinds of mobs were about to gather. 
Around 8 a.m., a group of Italian immigrants living in the Bronx set out for the elevated train on their way to Manhattan to join the parade. But they were not going to honor the American soldiers who had died in the service of their country. They were supporters of Mussolini, planning to join 400 American fascists who were marching in Manhattan's Memorial Day parade as part of the official fascist movement in the United States. They had been invited by the parade's organizers to the outrage of many anti-fascists, including Italian nationalists and anarchists who threatened violence if the invitation wasn't rescinded. It wasn't. Like all his fellow fascists intending to march that day, Joseph Carisi was wearing the black shirt uniform, sporting leather boots, jodhpurs, a black cap, and carrying a steel-tipped riding crop. When he stopped to buy a newspaper, Carisi was jumped by two men, stabbed in the neck, and left to die on the sidewalk. Another fascist, Nicholas Amoroso, who was running either to catch up with his group or away from the killers, reports vary, was shot four times, once right through the heart. One of the two murdered men had served in the American army during the Great War, the other with the Italian army, papers reported. The parade they had meant to join took place without them, a fascist delegation of several hundred that was guarded by police to, quote, avert disorder. After the parade, the American blackshirts returned to their headquarters in the heart of Times Square. There, another of the fascists, standing outside, was set upon by three men. He defended himself with his riding crop as his fellow blackshirts charged out brandishing clubs and whips, chasing the assailant through the theater traffic in Times Square, who fled as the blackshirted mob tore through the traffic. A hundred fascists, reported the New York Times, rushed the attackers. A melee ensued that was quickly dispersed by the police. There was also violence in Brooklyn, where a parade of fascisti marched from the Angelo Riza Fascista League at 274 Troutman Street in Bushwick. The LA Times reported several hundred men were parading, including 40 or 50 in the black shirt uniform. Fights broke out between supporters and protesters mingling on the sidewalks, and an anti-fascist was found lying on the ground, stabbed in the back. He survived and identified a fascist as his assailant. Accompanied by 30 police reserves to forestall violence, the marchers made their way through Brooklyn, stopping at the Wilson Avenue station, where the fascisti came to attention and gave the fascist salute. They ended at a Roman Catholic church, where the priest blessed them under large American and Italian flags, while the police remained on guard. The biggest outbreak of violence at Memorial Day, however, occurred in Queens, where it centered around a different right-wing group, not Italian-Americans, but the self-proclaimed 100% American kind. By 1927, the Ku Klux Klan had spread across the United States since its rebirth in Georgia 12 years earlier. The first Klan was formed in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, as former Confederate soldiers in Tennessee created a secret society to promote white supremacism and terrorize the newly freed slaves in the South during the Reconstruction era. The name is generally believed to originate from the Greek word for circle, kuklos, while Klan pays homage to the mystified Celtic heritage supposedly shared by white Southerners. Within a decade or two, the first Klan had been successfully suppressed by law enforcement and died out by the turn of the century. But in 1915, it was resuscitated in Georgia, and by the early 1920s, the second Klan had achieved a powerful political presence in the United States, not only in the South, but across the country. I would add this is because of uh, 1915, the movie Birth of a Nation came out. The Klan had an active presence in New York City and Long Island by 1927, with favorite slogans, which they even attempted to copyright at various points. That year, the Klan was, quote, calling attention to the fact that it first announced the program of 100% Americanism and of America first. They were not, in fact, the first to adopt these mottos, as this book will show. 
1927, both phrases had been around for a decade or more. But as far as the Klan busily copywriting hate was concerned, America First belonged to them. And on Memorial Day in Queens, a thousand or so of them had gathered to march, many in white robes and hoods. They were accompanied by 400 women from the so-called Clavana, the feminine branch of the Klan. Some of the reported 20,000 spectators in Queens that day objected to the Klan's presence as others defended their right to march. Scuffles broke out and it turned into a riot. Women fought women and spectators fought the policemen and the Klansmen as their desire dictated, said a newspaper. Klan banners were shredded and five of their number were arrested, said initial reports, while a few others were caught up in the confusion as well. The book, Behold America, Sarah Churchwell. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, Bill in Smoky Point, Washington says you disagree with me here, Bill. So you go to the front of the line. What's up? Uh, yeah, Tom, I don't think the whole gun thing's going to do anything. I mean, which gun thing? They've been fighting guns, trying to fight it. Okay, there's the gun owners are too large a portion of the population. They're actually not. <laughs> and in fact, people who own more than one or two or three guns is a very, very small percentage of the population. I have sixteen. You have Most sixteen of guns. Them are shots and yeah, you action. are an outlier. Very few people have sixteen weapons, and they're not weapons. I, they're intricate machineries that fascinate me. Yeah, okay, well, they're weapons too, and you know, but and the, that is the problem. A, what is the biggest obstacle for the Democrats getting education, health care? They're sacrificing the climate, health care, education, and everything else that could stop all the, that could help cut back on the violence fighting mechanical objects that you can throw in a lake and they'll never do anything. Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying, Bill, that by trying to put into place gun control, Democrats are going to activate Republican activists who, who are single-issue voters. It's the same thing with abortion. And the Republicans have successfully put together this coalition. And there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. And that's why I think that the Democrats have been kind of strategically ignoring this issue for the better part of 15 years. But, you know, right now what we've got they, is that they could take, they could get the gun owners on their side and we would never see another Republican in office. Yeah, I, I, I'm and with all you. They would I'm, have to do that is leave the actual guns alone and get some kind of an identification program in place. Well, I, you know, my, my proposal is that we just treat guns the way we treat guns? cars. That, yeah, that exactly. you know that, that you have to have liability insurance. That you have to register the gun, and you have to have a you have to have a permit. You have to have a, a gun, you know, a shooter's license. I'm all for that. Yeah, yeah it's just straightforward stuff, and, and it would clean up an awful lot. Okay. Bill, thanks for the call. Mark in Sauk City, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, what's up? Yeah, I can't, I can't, you know, with the gun discussion, I can't help but going back to, you know, Bill Ruger made the comment back in 1992. And now, for those who don't know, Bill Ruger was a firearms manufacturer. And he actually proposed magazine limits back in 1992 in an open letter to Congress. That and, and they were passed in 93, weren't they? Or was it 95? Because it expired remember. 10 years later. It was passed through reconciliation and uh, it expired during the George W. Bush presidency. Yeah, and, and, the, and, the, and the shift of the, of the owner's community has, has changed so much over the past 40 years, 40, 50 years, because in 1974 I was... I was like 16 and had, you know, was really interested in hunting and all this. I got a firearms encyclopedia in there. 
And as part of the definition of assault weapons, it says some assault rifles are produced only in semi-automatic form for sale as sporting arms. They are excellent for on military style of target, but have little application in hunting. Now they tricked a lot of those out, you know, to make them like hunting weapons. But you don't need anything like that for actual hunting. And the problem is now for a lot of you know with COVID and all this going on, the manufacturers are you know you know cranking out some rounds of ammunition, you know, like like 223s, like for for use in the the AR-15 types. But they're ignoring, you know, what the other, you know, regular, yeah. the old style I, sporting arms round. No, I, I'm with you. I just found the I just found the numbers for uh, 2020. The industry and firearms background checks show nearly 23 million guns were purchased in 2020. Those are the legal gun sales, and illegal gun sales or or not unregulated gun sales, let's call it, because the you know without FBI background checks, gun sales at uh, you know uh, by uh, mail. Uh, online or in gun shows and things like that uh, constitute about 40% of that market. So probably the actual number was around 40 million guns were added to America last year. In Wyoming, in the year 2020, there were 15 guns sold for every 100 adults living in Wyoming. That's in one year. Alabama, Alaska, and Montana tied for second place with 14 guns sold per 100 adults um, in, in those states. So uh, it's... it's uh, you know, like I said, you get more guns, you're going to get more deaths. I, I think it's very straightforward and, Mark, um, spot on. Thanks a lot for the call. Rebecca in Seattle. Hey, Rebecca, what's up? Hey, Tom. I, just a couple things, wanted to echo the previous caller who had mentioned that the second amendment was written in order to put down the slave revolt. I recently became familiar with a new book that's come out called The Second by Carol Anderson. Um, it's called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Yes. And uh, there she details how it's the Second Amendment was written to empower local militia groups to put down slave revolts and protect plantation owners. She was just featured yesterday, actually, on Democracy Now! for folks that just want a little blurb and not have to read the whole book. Sure. But um, just wanted to put that out there. That, that and I laid this out very, uh, very three years ago in a book called uh, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. And, I, oh, right. and I, yeah. I used the same source material that Carol Anderson did, you know, which is basically the Virginia Ratifying Convention, where Patrick Henry got up and gave his long speech. And, yeah, Sally Hayden. I uh, wrote a book called uh, Slave Patrols. That, that's a great primary source. Well, actually, she references primary source material. So uh, spot on, Rebecca. Thank you very much for that, and I appreciate it. James in Burnsville, West Virginia. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Hello, Mr. Hartman. Well, I wanted to bring up about the uh, AK-47s and the, the other weapons that, uh, in the military. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is put an internal magazine in those weapons that can can't be changed out. That will only take five rounds. And another thing is, if you go buy a weapon, you have to show proof that you went somewhere and been trained on how to handle a gun, much like hunter safety. Yeah. You wouldn't hand a hand a car to somebody without training them how to drive a car. So why not do the same thing with the 
Well, that's that. You know, the the conclusion that I came to in in my book on the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. You know, one of the primary conclusions was that we should regulate guns the way we regulate cars. Nobody complains about that. It seems entirely reasonable. You register it. You get a driver's license. In this case, it'd be a shooting license. You prove proficiency and knowledge of of uh, safety in the law, and you have liability insurance. Now, there are people who want to go farther than that. They want to make getting a gun like getting an abortion. They want you to have to have a three-day waiting period. You have to submit yourself to watching a video of, you know, pictures of people being shot and killed and, you know, mutilated bodies and things. They want you to be able to have to be provided with uh, alternatives to buying a gun, uh, you know, once you've told them exactly why you want the gun. Uh, <laughs> all, the, all the restrictions that we try to put in front of women and getting an abortion uh, being applied to guns. I'm not in favor of going that far, but I think that it's uh, an interesting point. But, uh, you know, spot on. James, thanks for the call. Uh, Wally in uh, Manhattan, New York. Hey, Wally, what's up? Oh, it's a lot of things I would like to say to you. I know you don't have the time. Pick one. When you say that white people don't want blacks to, what is it, to do better because then it's taking something away from them, was that something, was that your personal opinion or was that something you read? And can you let me say one more other thing before you answer that? <laughs> sure. The evangelicals, like, I listen to Swagger. Am I allowed to say Jimmy Swagger? Sure. Sometimes I listen to his program because I am a programmed Christian. <laughs> yeah. I used little. to, you know, back in when I was a teenager, From I used to little. listen to Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> From little. And I think Christians tend to be, we like, it's not that we like abuse, but we're programmed to be abused. Like, that's the Christian thing. Yeah. So when the evangelicals get on, they, they claim that the cl climate... They claim that the climate is not, um, it's not that we're doing nothing wrong to change the climate, that it's natural. These are natural occurrences. Yeah. And then they use this scripture from the Old Testament, I forget which one, saying that nothing's going to change, that not, uh, the climate doesn't yeah, change, or something to that effect. Well, but first I, of all, do me a favor, I know I, you got a break, but answer the question about the whites being afraid. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I mean, just, just look at any history of the Confederacy. <laughs> That's what we're still seeing right now. And that goes way beyond what I said. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. in Palmer, Alaska. Hey, Lynn, you've got an insight into the Weather Channel that uh, I don't think I knew about. Tell me about it. Yeah, Tom, I think it's quite interesting. Byron Allen, comedian and now media mogul, he owns the Weather Channel. Mm -hmm. 
Byron Allen has also taken on the cable networks. He sued them because they wouldn't allow him to have his channels on their networks. Uh, another interesting thing, he also is in the process of suing McDonald's because they aren't spreading around their advertising dollars with the black advertisers in the black community. He's, he's so a black he man. Yeah, black man, comedian. Wow. So he may be an interesting guest for you to have on. Yeah. It would be fascinating to, to, to yeah. hear his thoughts on all this. Oh, and, yeah, and, yeah. And also, I did see the interview yesterday with Carol Anderson on Amy. Quite fascinating. Yeah. I have to get her book. Yeah. yeah, Carol is good. What was the book she wrote before that? I, oh, White Rage, yeah. And One Person, yeah. No Vote. I've read all three of her books. The second, this her most recent book, Racing Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, is brilliant. And, you know, it, it, it covers a lot of the territory I covered in Guns in the Second Amendment, but it does, a, a, frankly, a better job of it. And also talks about, and I didn't really get into this in, in a lot of detail, I, I, my book is much shorter than hers, but she goes into the detail of the actual terror that these slave owners felt, you know, at the possibility that uh, the people that they had enslaved and brutalized and raped and tortured, you know, throughout their whole entire lives, might acquire the power to say, hey, turnabout is fair play. And it animated this movement toward militarizing, particularly the South, but America in general. And frankly, I think we're still there. And it's, but it's, it's, now it's not slave owners, it's just people who have benefited historically from these inequalities from, from, you know, that were established with slavery and the genocide of Native Americans. Right, I agree, and this is our American history we all need to know. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't solve problems if you don't understand their genesis, and and, and 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 we're just constantly ignoring this. Thank you very much for the call, Lynn. That was a good a good one, Carl in Ashley, Ohio. Hey, Carl, what's up? Thank you, Tom. I was thinking that uh, manufacturers for guns should make them do ballistics before they go out the door. That way, you know which guns have which bullets, and you know, it's fine seeing what's out. And Kind of know that when you buy the gun, you know. Here's a 40 caliber Ruger, or here's you know, here's a 38. Slightly different. The bolts are different, so each gun has its own fingerprint, so to speak. Yeah, and, well, and there are there are different kinds of rounds that you can buy. But I think most of them leave enough for some landing grooves in the bullet, though. Yeah, no, the rifling in the barrel will mark the bullet in a way that is like a fingerprint. You're absolutely right on that, Carl. Carl, thanks a lot for the call. It's, uh, you know, the question, I guess, is what do we do with this knowledge? Richard in Detroit. Hey, Richard, what's up? I just want to say that the gun control issue is really a losing issue for Democrats, you know, because most of the people I know, well, I said most people, but a lot of people I know are Democrats and most of them own guns. You know, just yesterday I purchased my six, six gun. Mm -hmm. And so to choose the gun control issue as the one that we're really willing to fight so hard over, you're going to turn off your own voters at the same time. You're going to motivate the right wing. Yeah. You know. I, I totally understand what you're saying, Richard, and the Republicans have been playing this thing like a fiddle, along with abortion. I mean, these are the two big issues that they use, the single issues that they use. Now they're trying to add critical race theory to that mix.
to get a trifecta, you know, to win the 2022 elections. And you're, you're absolutely right. That said, yeah. when you add 40 million guns to a country in one year, and then you see an explosion in gun violence, doesn't it seem like it's time to have a reasonable discussion on how we limit gun ownership to people who appropriately can and will use guns as opposed to the people who are shooting up our streets? Yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, that maybe Democrats should message better on that fact. I think so. Don't 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 regulate the guns, regulate the people. Yeah. Their own guns, you know. Too many yeah. times, the right wing controls a mess, and they say they're trying to take our guns, and that becomes the only thing we hear. Yeah, I but, know, and you know, and and it will be, and as long as they do that, and and actually, at the moment, I mean, I I, I put this topic on the on the uh, schedule today. Uh, Louise and I did this morning when we were looking around because you know it's it's it, it is we had all these deaths, all these gun shootings over the weekend. And what's, what I find fascinating is that Democrats are talking about gun violence in America, and gun violence is what's up. Republicans are talking about crime. And there are some places and some ways and areas where crime is up, mostly petty crime, and most of that seems to be associated with homelessness, you know, as a consequence of the, of the economic crash and COVID and all this kind of stuff. But the real rise in crime that we should be worrying about is homicide. And it's, and it's almost entirely being done with guns. And like I said, you add 40 million guns to a country in one year, it shouldn't surprise you if you start, suddenly start seeing a lot of gun deaths. So I think that this is an issue that we can't pretend doesn't exist and we do need to pay attention to. Richard, thank you for the call. Francesco in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Francesco, what's up? Yes, hi, Tom. I really love your show and appreciate it. Thank I you. appreciate it more because I'm in Florida, a transplanted New Yorker, so I uh, I have my issues down here. I just wanted to say uh, this dovetails into what you're talking about, I think, in, in every way. After the 2001 election, I started to call and do whatever I can to make people aware that with the Electoral College, we were going to have a president that represented less and less of the American people. Now I've come to feel that with the structure, and I was told at that time, well, there's no way procedurally to change the Electoral College, et cetera, et cetera. Now I see there's some movement in the direction of mitigating the injustice of the Electoral College. But in any case, now I see the much bigger obstacle to the representing the American people is the structure of the Senate. How can you have 10 states have a minute relative population and they control the policies of the United States because each senator, each state gets two senators. Now, I think this dovetails into your talk about gun control because I think most Americans would be for sensible gun control, but because of the structure of the Senate, it will not happen. And that applies to lots of policies that most of the American people are for. Yeah, I agree, and uh, this is one of the reasons why it would be a good thing to have D.C. and Puerto Rico added as states. It would add a little more diversity to the to the Senate. And frankly, I think California and New York should split into two states each, but, you know, that's not going to happen. I just feel like the Electoral College that when I first started talking about it, people would say, well, nothing will ever, there'll be no, there won't be any movement yeah. on that because of all the procedural issues. I think people have to at least start looking at this. 
and realizing that the American people will not be represented yeah. as long as this as long as it's structurally the way it is. Yeah. And there is a movement to have states pass these state laws. I mean, let's keep in mind, the last time a Republican seized the White House with a majority of the votes of the United States was 1993 and it was George Herbert Walker Bush. That was literally the last time. It has been, you know, going on 30 years since a Republican won the White House with the majority of American votes. So, uh, Francesco, thanks a lot for the call. And stick around. Our book today for the uh, Tom Harbour Book Club is The Next American City, The Big Promise of Our Mid-Sized Metros by Mick Cornett. Uh, we're reading from the foreword by Richard Florida. A funny thing happened in the early years of the millennium. A rising global economy alongside powerful new technologies that connected corners of the globe in an instant would make it possible for us to live and work virtually anywhere we wanted. It seemed all but certain that the forces that were connecting our world would flatten it too and continue to push people apart. Well, those forces did the opposite. They drove us closer together, not farther apart. They brought us back to cities and to urban life. The 20th century was the century of suburbanization, the flight from cities of people and industry, commerce and jobs, as far from downtowns as our cars and highways could take us. The American dream was then a vision of a big house and a car, followed by a bigger house, two cars and more. A big plot of land you could call your own. It was life on America's next great frontier, what the urban historian Kenneth Jackson called the crabgrass frontier. As a young boy growing up in New Jersey, I watched my hometown of Newark decline. I saw the city erupt into riots. I saw the factory where my father worked shutter. I saw the newspaper where my mom worked, the Star Ledger, ringed with barbed wire fences. Between 1950 and 1980, Boston lost almost 30% of its population. After the Boeing bust, Seattle's unemployment reached as high as 25%. In 1975, New York City, while still arguably the world's most powerful global center of business and corporate finance, nearly declared bankruptcy. One of my professors at Rutgers wrote an article provocatively titled The City as Sandbox, which argued that America's cities had become hollowed-out shells, having lost their core economic functions to the suburbs. But now, shockingly, the 21st century has been deemed the century of the city. Young people, professionals, and a growing predominance of scientists, techies, knowledge workers, and artists, designers, and media types, a group I call the creative class, have streamed back to cities in ways no one anticipated. Major companies are heading back to cities in droves. Even startup companies are abandoning their tech-driven nerdistans and suburban office parks for the vibrancy and hubbub of urban centers. So far, it's fairly clear that large cities and metropolitan areas have benefited disproportionately from this urban shift. The first two decades of this urban revival have been marked by winner-take-all urbanism, where in a relatively small number of superstar cities like New York and London and knowledge centers like San Francisco, Boston, and Seattle have attracted the largest concentration of talent, ideas, investments, and economic activity. However, the reality is that the new urban knowledge economy is not determined by size alone. In fact, population size and population growth are actually poor predictors of innovation and economic growth. And as our largest urban centers have become increasingly expensive, unaffordable, and divided, they price out and drive away the very diversity that powered their innovativeness and growth to begin with. As the late great urbanist Jane Jacobs once told me, 
When a place gets boring, even the rich people leave. It's a big mistake to write off small places. College towns in particular have boomed as have a host of smaller and mid-sized cities, even rural areas. Size may be an advantage, but it's not the sole determinant of success. Smaller places that cultivate innovation and creativity have abundant natural or urban amenities and connect to larger centers in the United States and the world are thriving. The reality of our time is that the world is spiky, not flat. While technology may have flattened access to ideas and information, the reality of our time is that access to opportunity has become increasingly spiky in this urban century. And this spikiness occurs across all scales. Some large places, the ones we all know and talk about, are doing fine, but others are struggling. And the same goes for small and medium-sized cities in rural areas. Some thrive, some coast along, and many others decline. After years of study, I've concluded that the key thing that distinguishes the thriving places of any and all size is surprisingly simple. Successful places are intentional. They undertake efforts to leverage and build upon their own unique assets. They mobilize their anchor institutions, their own civic organizations, and their people. They build true public-private partnerships. And large or small, they create a genuine quality of place that all can see and feel. As I travel to cities like Milwaukee and Des Moines and Boise and Oklahoma City, my former hometown of Pittsburgh, my wife's hometown of Detroit, and countless others across America, I see the incredible progress many so-called flyover places have made. And now I watch as even smaller communities like Bentonville or El Dorado, Arkansas, the latter chronicled in these very pages, do much the same to leverage their own knowledge assets or lakefronts and hillsides or arts communities to create their own renaissance. It can be done. It is being done. It does, however, take money and smart policy and great local leaders. But above all, it takes intentional leadership to mobilize the energy of the community to do it. In the decade or so since writing The Rise of the Creative Class, I watched Mick Cornett mobilize his community in just that way during his four terms as mayor of Oklahoma City. If you've heard of him at all, it's likely from the time he famously energized his community by putting the entire town on a diet to encourage fitness and vitality, long before wellness became a watchword for the new urbanization. His accomplishments go far beyond that single story, however. Cornett was the longest serving in a long line of fiscally conservative Oklahoma City mayors that have understood the importance of a city investing in this new urban talent-driven age. And he goes on to talk about that, the next American city. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.